Hello, and welcome back to the Security Asia podcast. My name is Ron Efron. Today, we have a very interesting guest, and we'll be exploring the technology and topic of encryption. Professor Gideon Samid, easily the smartest person in the room, a mathematician, and an engineer, a teacher, an inventor, uh, a writer even, and some people even call him a philosopher. He has 19 patents already recorded and registered to his name and several more in the pipeline. In his spare time, he also teaches innovation. I got to know Gideon through his work on digital currency and encryption, which uh, is basically what we intend to talk about today. So Gideon, um, welcome to the show. How are you doing? Thank you for the invitation. Well, thank you for coming on. I know uh, you are based in the Washington, D.C. area, correct? And it is your evening now, I, I think around 9.30 at night. Yeah, it's almost uh, nighttime. I would call it nighttime, not evening. <laughs> <laughs> so getting to know you and going through your uh, sort of resume, so to speak, it's it's actually not easy to introduce you. Did, did I do a um, did I do you justice? Is there anything you wanted to add to that? I am uh, basically an engineer mm-hmm. uh, with uh, an inclination to examine life. So that's what philosophers do. I believe that we all have to express whatever talents that we have, although they may be sometimes far apart. So yes, I enjoy writing uh, in a literary fashion and I enjoy doing uh, mathematics and doing engineering. I also do some uh, painting and drawing. Whatever I feel that I have the ability to do something that's meaningful, I try to do it and I have to pay... uh, with uh, all kinds of dismissive attitude by people on one side, they say, how can an engineer write? Mm. Writers say, how can a writer be so such a boring engineer? But, you know, I just take from all sides. And in a way, I think it's helpful. I get cross-inspiration from the different fields that I am engaged in. Well, that's great. And I'm actually currently reading one of the books you wrote, a thriller that actually... Um is goes through the concept of uh, and the technology of encryption. I understand the book is not yet published, and maybe we can go deeper into that uh, later, but I am enjoying that very much, and it's very uh, educational and a great way to get to understand the technology for mere mortals like, like myself here. But tell me, Gideon, how did you get into encryption uh, to begin with? I had some uh, background in encryption or in cybersecurity from a more distant path in Israel. I looked at it with fresh eyes, and I developed uh, what I considered a new approach that I eventually uh, evolved into several patents, as you mentioned, and into uh, an attitude towards uh, cryptography, which represents a challenge to the way cryptography is handled today. Cryptography became so important in our lives. It was something that, you know, you had to be a spy to even know what it is. Nobody else used it except spooks and spies. Today, every time you buy something online, you're using cryptography, you're using encryption. So it became uh, something that our civilization relies on it. And now there are people that are building or trying to build um, the future of money strictly on cryptography from something esoteric that nobody knew how to spell even the word it is a topic that any educated 
literate person should know some basic things about. And that's so, extremely interesting for me. So oh, that's, that's fascinating. So should we, can you um, walk us very briefly through the history of encryption? Well, very briefly, uh, there is the, what we call the classic era that was before computers. And then in that era, people tried to do something uh, innovative and smart that uh, will be like a puzzle too difficult for the other side to solve. And the other side put smart people and they eventually solve the puzzles. And uh, so there were, the cryptographers uh, came up with a more twisted puzzle and the cryptanalysts, the people who the encryption, uh, found ways to crack it too. It was like a cat and mouse game. Mm-hmm. Eventually, this is, this, is, uh, this, is, this is back in like World War One, World War Two type of time. Is that true? The, uh, yeah, no, World War Two. Yes, yes. The Enigma, which the Nazis used, is an example of something that they figured out that it is so complex that nobody will be able to uh, to crack it. They didn't count on Alan Turing mm-hmm. that uh, did crack it and shortened the war. Some say some estimates they read uh, two years, and he saved more people. Then Roosevelt, just Alan Turing, just because he was smart enough to crack the Enigma cipher, and that was uh, still not technology, though. That was that was was that still was that that, that was that was uh, that was not no, it was technology because he built the first uh, subcomputer to crack it that Alan Turing built. The machine that the Enigma machine was technology. It wasn't computer. It was some rotating disks with a particular wiring that encrypted one letter to another based on some key. So it was technology, but it wasn't okay. computerized. I understand. Uh, and that's the difference. Eventually, when computers came to be, then uh, we came to a new era. It was no longer puzzles. It was based on mathematical complexity. The idea was that in what we call symmetric encryption, in normal encryption, to develop a procedure to change the message into something different in such a way that it cannot be reversed. Mm. And that's sad that and the, and the party was trying to reverse it is trying to build a computer fast enough and reverse it. So that was the game. And the game gave uh, an advantage to those who have smarter people and faster computers. So naturally, you know the N the the NSA in the United States was the big dog. And so, when you say uh, smarter computers, you mean the bigger smarter, computer, smarter man, and mathematician, and smarter mathematician, and and faster computers. And is that because they're able to um, through like brute force uh, means to break an encryption? Yeah, brute force is the uh, the method of last resort. When you encrypt some a message, you use something called a key. A key is some combination of characters, of letters and digits. And you know that this encryption that somebody is using uses a key that's comprised, let's say, of 20 characters. You don't know which character. But you can, very fast as you can, try all combination of characters and then find the the right one and crack the cipher. That's the brute force method. That's the brute force approach. Now, there are some methods to accelerate the brute force, so it's going to be faster. And of course, there are ways that that if you are a mathematician and you find a mathematical flaw, that you can simply process the ciphertext into plain text and the key without the brute force, if you are smart enough. So encryption went into, uh, into the computer era. 
The big difference came in the uh, early 70s, or mid 70s of the last century, where one of the premises that prevailed for thousands of years was challenged. And the premise was simple. For thousands of years, the transmitter and the recipient shared the key. So if I wanted to send you a message, I use the key to encrypt it. You take the cryptogram or the ciphertext, as you may call it, plug in the same key and extract the message. We call it symmetric encryption. Mm -hmm. Same key used to encryption, same for decryption. And this was challenged by uh, some young mathematician to say, we can have one key to encrypt the message and a different key to decrypt the message. Now, it sounds, so what? But if you think for a moment, this is earth-shaking. That Why means that? That, that I can, if, I, if I'm a journalist and I want people to report to me some delicate news, I can publish the key for anyone to encrypt their message and send them to me. But I keep the decryption key private. Right, so that's the public-private key sort of method? Exactly. Okay. Public-private key means there are two keys. I make public one, and this allows me to use the private key so that only I can read the message, and anyone in between does not, because they don't have my private key. What it allows, it allows me to communicate with perfect strangers, which before was impossible. Hmm. In order for communication to happen, the two communicators had to share a key, had to know each other before. They had to, they had to coordinate in advance. Exactly. Yes. And now it was possible not to. In addition, also in the same era in the 70s, they developed a method for two strangers let's say on the internet that everything that they say to each other is monitored by an adversary. They cannot say anything private. Still, a mathematical way was found for those two strangers to exchange information in such a way that they will build a shared key as if they knew each other before. And the adversary who is listening to everything that they are saying to each other will not know what this key is. This simple procedure enabled e-commerce because when I, am, when I find some store on the internet, they don't know me, I don't know them. But in order to pay them, I need a secure channel. In order to have a secure channel, we need to share a key. But we never met. How would we share a key? So we use this procedure and we have a shared key and then we can make a transaction. Now, there is an interesting uh, part to this. The mathematics that allows this was originally developed by uh, German mathematician Frederick Gauss, who is considered by many the greatest mathematician of all time. This Gauss, a brilliant mathematician, was very uh, annoyed that before everything that he developed in math, engineers took it and built something uh, practical out of it, built bridges, houses, and machinery, all based on the mathematics that he developed. And he said, no, mathematics is like art. It shouldn't be applied. It has to stand for its own beauty. So he looked for something to develop math where he would be absolutely guaranteed that there would be no application whatsoever. And he uh, developed all kinds of mathematics based on what they call the theory of numbers. 
which is the theory of one, two, three, four of integers, of normal counted number, no fractions, just regular numbers. Find out how many numbers divide by nine and how many numbers are prime or have any other properties. That was considered by him something with total absence of any applicability. Little did he know that a few decades ago, this exact math is what in the foundation of the asymmetric cryptography, which is just described to you. And this uh, asymmetric cryptography gave rise to e-commerce, to uh, any application for privacy and confidentiality on the internet. It's all based on this. Bitcoin and cryptocurrency is based on the same idea. Now it, 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 we are coming to the era of quantum computers, which are computers that are uh, several order of magnitudes faster than the old computers, which are considered Turing machines, after Alan Turing, who first described them. And now there is kind of a broad consensus that these new computers will be able to crack all the cryptographies that we rely on, whether it's digital money, crypto money, or uh, a secure uh, bank wire, or any secure communication, uh, military or peaceful or anything. Hold on, Gideon. So just to sort of bring it back, what is the current status or the current situation of encryption? Is it the same, generally speaking, as it was in the 70s? Well, no, because the crypt analysts found ways to crack some of the ciphers that we use in the 70s. So now we uh, use different algorithms, different procedures for asymmetric encryption. And we use more complicated algorithm for symmetric encryption. And in general, we are chasing greater and greater complexity to make sure that no one will be able to crack what we are doing. One of the problems is that, and people are not aware of it, yes, it is based on math. It's all 100% mathematics. But none of the ciphers that are being used today has any proof that it does what it's supposed to do. And the only reason that we are using certain ciphers is that the smart people that are in this business are saying, uh, we tried to crack it and we couldn't. Now, if we couldn't, because we are the smartest guy around, then nobody can. Which is, of course, what the Germans did in World War II. They tried to crack Enigma and concluded that it's impossible. They cannot do it, so nobody can do it. And the rest is history. So there is no proof of, of efficacy for anything people are using. Except, and that's kind of a really fascinating story, for a cipher that was patented in 1918. So it's more than 100 years ago. A young man in Bell Lab, Gilbert uh, Werner, and he at the time boasted, this is unbreakable. And everybody laughed at him. Everybody who patents a cipher says it's unbreakable. We have heard this before. But 25 years later, Claude Shannon, who is the father of modern information theory, published a paper and said, you know, this old uh, arrogant uh, SOB, he was right. It's unbreakable. And he gave the proof. Is it easy to explain? Let me try to explain. And that is the, the fundamental difference between this Vernum cipher and all the other ciphers. We talked in a few minutes ago, about brute force. What's brute force? You take a the cryptogram, the ciphertext, and you, and you try to uh, decrypt it with all possible keys. Eventually, you hit the right one, and bingo, you cracked it. But for that to work, 
it must be that there is only one key that will decrypt the ciphertext to a meaningful message. If you use the procedure for any different key, what comes out of it is not a legible message, but garbage. And then you know you don't have the right key and you try another one, another one, until you put one key and bingo, there is a message. Let's rob the bank. Now you know they intended to rob the bank. And we call this commitment to the plain text. The cryptogram or the ciphertext commits to the message or what we call the plain text that generated it. And this commitment is the situation, is the reality through all the ciphers that we are using. Now, Vernum cipher was different. Vernum cipher could be decrypted with any key to different messages, or put it differently. If you give me a, a Vernum cryptogram that has thousand letters in it, all mixed up, I can come up with any normal message that will have thousand letters. And it will say, yesterday was a sunny day, but a little bit breezy. Let's say it is takes a thousand. I take this message, which is totally innocent, and there will be a key that will decrypt this cryptogram to this innocent message. And this key, mathematically, will be the same as the key that will decrypt the cryptogram to the real message, which say, let's rob the bank tomorrow. In other words, the ciphertext does not point to the message that generated it. So therefore, like the users, the, therefore, the people that are trying to read the message, they don't know if that it's the real message or not. Uh, exactly. Uh, it's, it's like if you catch someone running out of the hotel with blood on their hand and you check and they have a, a hotel room a, a key and the guy doesn't tell you which room he came out of. Okay. Mm -hmm. So you, you take this key and try room after room after room. Eventually, you find out that room 310 it opens and you walk in and there is a dead body there. Bingo, you connected this guy to this room. But if this happens and you take the key out of this person that runs in the lobby and you try room one, it opens, room two, it opens, room three, it's the master key. Then you don't have evidence that this guy came out of room 310. Right. That's, so that is the power of Vernon. So Vernon is unbreakable. But but all just back to that. So so if you do have the right key, then you'll see the right message. Is is that correct? Exactly. But if you only have the ciphertext, so you, you might don't. you might be able to guess a, a key, but that will not give you the the right the um, the true message. Right. So therefore, so, brute force will not work. Exactly. So this 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 thief with the master key could give this this the uh, this master key to a friend and say, go to with it. To room 310, I left the jewels there or whatever. Right. So with that extra but piece of information, they know exactly, where to go to. Exactly. But just, but just with the master key, you cannot connect this person with room 310. That's yes. the difference. Now, it sounds so powerful. And the question would be, naturally, if this was patented in 1918, why are we doing something else if this is unbreakable? What's the catch here? Good question. And, that's, and there is a good answer for this. <laughs> it so happened that in order to use this uh, powerful and unbreakable cipher, you need a very, very long key. In fact, the size of the key 
should be the size of the message. That means that the two people who communicate have to exchange a lot of information because the keys, and that's a mathematical fact of the way it works, the key cannot be repeated. In fact, one of the fascinating stories is that although this was invented in America, in America they ignored the Vernum cipher, but the Russians picked it up and the Russians used the Vernum cipher when they spied on America, especially when they stole the atomic uh, secrets from the Manhattan Project. And the only way that they were caught is that one time, by mistake, a clerk in the Russian embassy, the Soviet embassy at the time, used the same key or part of the same key twice. That was enough to crack the message. So this key size was an inconvenience. On top of it, for mathematical reason, the key itself has to be perfectly random. In other words, should have no pattern. The pattern is something that people can predict, can detect, and can crack. The whole idea of cracking cryptography is detecting pattern. So the key should be completely without any pattern, perfectly randomized. And there was no technology at the time, 1918, to uh, have... A stream of perfectly randomized bits. Brings us to today. Today we have the technology to uh, develop a stream of randomized bits. And today we have the technology to uh, use large keys. So today it's time to uh, go back to history, pull out the old Vernum cipher and uh, come up with the same philosophy, but with more advanced Cipher, And that's exactly what we are doing in Bitmin. Bitmin is the company uh, that I am the, the chief technology officer for. And that's what we are doing. We are taking the Vernum philosophy and coming up with trans-Vernum ciphers that can be used with perfect security or if you use a smaller key with a little bit less than perfect security and have a lot of capabilities that were not there before we open this new gate of Transvernum cipher. One of them is to hide a pattern of usage. Most of the hackers, what they do in, in Wall Street, they don't, they don't crack messages. They track communication pattern. If a certain bank uh, has a lot of communication with a certain company, it's an indication that uh, some merger or some purchase is going to happen. They don't need to read the messages, they just follow the traffic, the traffic pattern. So with the Transvernum technology, you can hide the pattern and it's not visible. You can do things like having one cryptogram that with different keys will decrypt to the same message, but in different level of completion. So you can send a message from the CEO to, the comp to everyone in the company the people at the low level, they will see the basic message, uh, but no more. The, their manager will see the basic message, but some information dedicated for them. And the highest executive will see more information, all in the same cryptogram that everybody will decrypt with a different key according to their credentials. So there is a variety of things that, that can be done using a supply of randomness and including digital money, because one of the problems of digital money is that you cannot 
put the entire monetary system at the mercy of some smart mathematician that will say, oh, I can crack this math, and the whole money disappears. Now, remember, we talked about public and private keys, where the one is encrypting and another is decrypting. They are different. They are they have different keys, and the idea is that if you have one, you cannot find what the other is. But because one is the reverse of the other, it's clear that they are mathematically connected. You just have to be smart enough to expose the math, and there is no limit on how smart the adversary could be. We don't know if someone with an Alan Turing mental capacity was not born in, uh, in Moscow or in Shanghai 20 years ago and uh, now is doing to us what Alan Turing did to Germany. So that's why it is important to, to have the capability of this transvernum cipher that for communication that are of top security, you can exercise and execute them with complete guarantee that it remains secure no matter how smarter the adversary is or how so, faster his computer. What is stopping the industry or the world, um, corporations, governments, etc., to be using this technology? Is it, other than the challenges that you mentioned, could it be that governments are not really excited about this as well? I mean, I could assume if I put my cynic hat on that the governments that used to have are... Uh, enjoy certain backdoors or certain privileges sometimes that they may not want to have a totally secure product on the market? You know, uh, this is an area where uh, nobody's talking. <laughs> but, okay. <laughs> uh, but you can, but, but there are some things that are quite obvious. First of all, it's the uh, capitalistic argument. People are making billions of dollars selling the current technology and the current security. So, uh, so you have invested interest. You have you have the incumbents. Exactly, exactly. The, the, also, there is a problem with cryptography that we encounter in the marketplace all the time. Most people say, "I don't understand it. I don't want to understand it. Install what's necessary and just leave me alone." It's it's so daunting. It's so mathematically heavy. It's so unappealing. That's why I was so surprised that I put a cryptography channel on YouTube. And I get 600, 700,000 views on something that is just boring cryptography. Uh, so some people are interested, but the, the people who are even doing security, they want to, to change your password. They want to do all kinds of external security. Cryptography is uh, just install it and forget about it. So they don't want to change. So that's, that's one reason. Now, but there is something more subtle. As long as everyone is using the uh, today's cryptography, it gives the big players in the field, in the United States, the NSA, the challenge to secretly crack those ciphers because they're crackable. And of course, when they do, they hide it as best they can. That's why they were so angry at Edward Snowden that in uh, 2013, spill the beans and say, hey, Nintendo say they can crack this and that. It's just, just not telling it. So if everybody is, is going to use Vernum or Transvernum ciphers, it will be a new era. Then you cannot be uh, smart enough to hammer the message out of the ciphertext. It will be futile. 
then you will have to do something more dangerous and more difficult. You will have to steal the key from the user's computer, which can be done, but uh, it's um, get your hands much dirty. more elegant to be to have a smart mathematician in the basement doing some math and whoop, he found the key. So there is a fear. It's not. I am not talking as a as a reporter who interviewed uh, people in the establishment. I am just using just common sense. Exactly. There is a fear that uh, a new era comes, and the advantage that uh, cryptanalytic shops will have will be no no longer. So there is an attempt to. I mean, this is inevitable. It will come. Uh, cannot be stopped. They are trying to hang on to the configuration of today where they have a lot of a lot of advantage and how long it it will last you know i don't have a crystal ball maybe uh, for quite a long time but the unknown is really the quantum computers and the biggest problem with quantum computers is that most of the development is done behind uh, heavy curtains in the late 20th century people published hey here's a quantum computer algorithm here's a quantum computer algorithm but since then it's quiet so Whatever is being developed in terms of algorithm is not published. So we don't know how risky they are, but most of the industry experts agree that it's just a matter of time to be in a situation that quantum computers are cracking what we have. Now, the standard way of thinking about this, what is called post-quantum cryptography, is to build increasing complexity. So that they, even the quantum computers will not be able to. So basically using the same concept today, but just so much more, more difficult. More complex. Okay. More complex. And so when uh, when some lone uh, people uh, on the side are saying, you, you need a fresh approach. You need to go back to old Vernam and modify it for the time. Use the fact that we have 5G technology. We can easily use a larger uh, ciphertext. Uh, that's one of the drawbacks of this new technology is that for a given message, when you encrypt it, it becomes 10 times, uh, maybe even 100 times longer. For normal text, uh, it's not a big problem uh, because 5G is just so efficient bitwise. But if you want to encrypt some videos, it can be more, more of a challenge. But what you get is mathematical proof of security. Sometimes it, it may not be 100%, but you know it's 80% and you can calculate it because it's based on probability calculus and you don't have to worry about how smart the adversary would be. So we foresee a new era. How soon? Uh, that's another question. Well, I'm just being mindful of the time here a little bit. And um, I know it's getting late for you, but I realize that there's so much more to talk about. I wanted to touch on know more about the current challenges, the future uh, vision and trends. We talked a little bit about that now, but more, I would like to go deeper into the quantum computers, uh, possibly a little bit around uh, blockchain. I want to hear more about uh, BitMint and your your solution and digital currency and all that. Uh, I'm afraid, my friend, that we might have to uh, schedule another time to and do a part two. Uh, would you be okay with that? Yeah. And I think that it's very important to make to complete what we started is talk about this big revolution of cryptocurrency and the concept of blockchain, how solid is it, how uh, vulnerable it is to quantum computers, how vulnerable it is to abuse. Everybody talks about decentralized uh, power. Is it decentralized or 
is it centralized with a hidden center? So all those are questions that uh, should be of interest to, to anyone living in the modern age. Okay, so if that's okay with you, well, I think we'll schedule another time and we'll continue this conversation. I think this is great stuff. I okay. have a lot more questions here that I actually want to uh, ask. And uh, f- of course, in the show notes, we'll, we'll point people to uh, your various links so they can go and um, look at your YouTube channel or connect with you directly if they have any more questions. So Gideon, again, mindful of your time. Thank you so much for coming on the show and I will schedule another time with you and we will continue this conversation. So thank you. Thank you, Ron. Thank you, Ron. It was a privilege to be interviewed.